Well, before we begin our time in God's Word today, I just want to uh, give a shout out to our congregation at Stone Oak. It's uh, the fifth anniversary of our campus at Stone Oak this morning, so we want to celebrate with them uh, what God is doing there. Well, we've all seen a policeman shooting radar, and some of them will hide behind a bush or a blind corner. But back before I was a pastor, I was a policeman in Dallas, and I had a different method. Uh, What I would like to do is sit out right on the center median. Now, not over the crest of a hill, but I would sit in a flat spot where everybody could see me. And I'd, I'd, I'd sit there so you could see me and repent as you were coming up speeding. And if you would tap your brakes, if you would slow down, I would just point at you and I'd let you go. But even with that, uh, there were lots of people who would zip by doing 20 miles or more over the speed limit. Now, when I would get up to the window of the car, again, you had a second opportunity to show some level of remorse. Uh, but many would just uh, beg for a ticket. They would tear into me and they would say, why don't you go out and do your job and catch murderers and robbers instead of worrying about my little sin of speeding. Now, I'll give you a little application right up front. Don't do that. (laughs) Unless you want a ticket. I mean, go ahead if you want a ticket. Now, you might get one anyway, but remember that a lot of times courtesy begets courtesy. For those who were honest and would say, officer, I'm sorry, I know I was speeding. Uh, I'd, I'd often just give a warning, or if I did write you, it'd be for a minimum amount, just, you know, the smallest amount I could write for. But for those who who wanted to tell me off, I had a rule. The longer you talk, the more I wrote. Uh, And, you know, the motor vehicle code is about this thick, so it's not just speeding. Oh, your seatbelt's off, your registration's expired, your inspection. I mean, you could go on and on. So if the person chose to be obstinate, the level of consequences would, would rise to meet it. And the reason I'm telling you this is because as we're going through the book of Judges, we're seeing something similar with God. Now, he's not a cosmic cop hiding behind a bush waiting to bust us when we do bad things. But what we're seeing in Judges is what God says is if we choose to break his laws, if we harden our hearts when he tries to save us from doing dangerous things, then the level of consequences will rise with him because he's trying to get our attention. He's trying to bring us back to him. So I invite you to look with me now as we turn in our Bible to Judges chapter 3, where we're going to continue to see uh, this cycle of sin that we've already seen in the book of Judges. You'll remember in Judges, we start out with sin. Now, the Bible tells us all of us as people are sinners. If you could put sin up there, please. Uh, This is something that we all experience in our life. But what we've seen in Israel is the people were living uh, separate from God. They turned his back on them. They would not follow God or his word, and this resulted in a time of slavery where God gives them over to the pagan gods that they chose to serve, and they experience the consequences for their sin. And as they're in this time of servitude or slavery, we would see supplication. This is where they would cry out to God. They would ask for him to deliver them, show his mercy as they would repent and turn back to God. And God in his mercy would raise up somebody to save them. There would be a time of salvation as a judge uh, was raised up, a military leader or savior to lead the people and free them from their time of oppression. And this would lead to silence. This was a time where there would be rest in the land. They would not be under the the enemy occupation. They would have a, a time of peace within the land. 
But sadly, the people would then turn back to their sin, and the whole cycle would start back over again. And as we look at Judges chapter 3 and verses 1 through 4, we're told, now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. These nations are the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in, in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Labo Hamath. And they were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. Now, reading that, it may seem like things are bleak, but I want you to to not miss the great mercy and love of God because God could have wiped his people out. He could have walked away from them. But what we're reading here is God has allowed another generation to arise in Israel. We've already seen two full cycles of this in the first chapters in Judges. And rather than turning his back on God, what we see is he's continuing to fulfill his covenant he made with them, even when they've been unfaithful to him. Instead of writing them off, he writes something like Romans 8.28 across their situation, across their failures. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so what we're told here is God takes a test that they had failed, and he uses it to train his people. And, and what we're reading about specifically is how Israel then and now, even in our day, is a nation that needs to know how to fight. They are a nation surrounded by enemies. And they are a country that has to know how to wage war. And when it says God is trying to teach his people the ways of war, it's not just talking about how to hold a sword or fight in formation. Uh, this is talking about fighting on their knees where they recognize their full need and dependence of God and that they turn to him and depend upon him. Some would look at our country here in America and say, well, after decades of fighting wars, our, our nation has been at one war after another for decades, we would say, well, we're a country that knows how to fight. And we are blessed with uh, some of the greatest technologies that have ever been known. We have uh, arsenal and abilities that we could trust in. But just like Israel, we need to remember where our help comes from. Not only as a country, but as a congregation, we need to learn to fight on our knees. We need to be people of prayer. We need to be people who are dependent upon God, not trusting in our own stuff and abilities, forgetting that we are fully dependent on God. And when we forget God, God will allow things to happen to force us to turn back to him. If, if you're somebody who uh, has ever found yourself flat on your back and the only place you can look up and see God, that's what God is doing with Israel. And that's what he does in our own lives at times. There are times he will allow us to be flat on our backs so that we look up and see him. Some are fighting battles right now in our own lives because we're like Israel. We've forgotten God. We've forgotten how we've been blessed by God. And we've made choices where we've turned from God. We've aligned ourselves with the things of the world. And because of that, we find ourselves in a, in a kind of a captivity, uh, a slavery and servitude to an addiction, to some sin, to some consequence. And if what you find yourself in is similar to that today, I want to encourage you with this. 
What we're reading about Israel should be an encouragement to you because it shows God is not done with you. God will not walk away from you. God will not turn his back on you. Wherever you find yourself today, God knows you and he loves you. And what he's doing is he's at work trying to turn us back to him. Now, some may be saying, well, Roger, I've turned to God. I've been walking with him, and yet I'm still facing battles. There are giants in, in the land, enemies in the land of my life, so to speak. What, what is God doing? I have a friend who's a fellow pastor, uh, Gary Enrig. He wrote a book called Hearts of Iron, Feet of Clay. And in it, he says, at least part of the answer is found in Judges 3.2. The Lord uses those difficulties to teach us how to wage spiritual war. He wants to shake us out of our apathy and teach us to trust him. Often it is only when the enemy has run all over us and our resources are gone that we develop a teachable spirit. There are times in our life when the roof gets blown off and everything seems to fall to pieces. Those times of failure and crisis become teaching times as the Lord shows us how to make war, how to trust him. You know, it's natural to want life to be easy and comfortable, right? We'd all love that. But I want to remind you that the way that you develop muscles, the way that you grow uh, is, is by, you know, this, this tension where you're, you're straining against a load. The way that steel is, is hardened, is, it's tempered uh, through the hard things, through fire. Gold and silver and precious metals are refined uh, through, the, through the furnace. And and God has work for us to do. He's left enemies in the land, and he needs to strengthen us. He needs to toughen us up. And sometimes the things that you are going through are being used by God to prepare you for these things. There's ground to be gained. There's enemies like Satan to be faced. The Bible warns us that this in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10, it says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You know, all of us are disheartened by what we see happening in Afghanistan. Not only the loss of life of our brave men and women serving, our troops that are there, and Uh, that country falling apart. Many of you know there's an underground church in Afghanistan. There are Christians there who have already been martyred for their faith. There are others that are being hunted down. And it's easy to despair of that and saying, what is God doing? Is he at work? Has he forgotten? Has he abandoned his people? I have friends who are connected uh, to the underground church there, and they've told me that the church has tripled in size since Afghanistan has fallen. People who were on the fence Uh, who had not yet made a decision for Christ, have said, I will follow Jesus. I will die for Christ if necessary. Uh, Those I know in other countries where persecution has happened uh, tell me that, you know, you've you've heard this saying that the blood of martyrs waters the tree of faith. Uh, A Korean Christian from North Korea told me one time, we're like nails. The harder you hit us, the deeper you drive us. And so we can look at this and say, well, Satan, our enemy is winning. Friends, he's not winning. God is on the throne. Satan is simply the elevator boy who's taking more uh, brothers and sisters home to their glory. And and God has a plan, and he's in control. And sometimes we look at hard things happening, and we say, what is God doing? And I thought a little bit 
to illustrate that of a story of a group of people who were on the deck of a cruise ship. They were out in the ocean, and the seas were a little bit rough, but it wasn't too bad, and people were on the deck kind of watching the waves when suddenly a rogue wave came up. And it, it washed over the deck, and there was a woman near the rail who actually got washed overboard. And as she went into the ocean and people looked out over the rail, uh, they could see her splashing around. She was screaming, help me, I don't know how to swim. And, and people were fl- frozen in horror, like somebody save her, somebody do something. And uh, suddenly uh, a man went over, head first into the water near her. He came up by her. Uh, he grabbed onto her and he was able to keep her above the waves until some life rings could be thrown out. And they eventually pulled both Uh, the woman and this uh, rescuer back on the deck. And as they they brought the the man on deck who had had helped to save her, uh, people were a little bit embarrassed because they they realized he was actually the oldest man on the ship. He was almost 80. And they were embarrassed that this this man had had gone in the water uh, to see the hero was the oldest man on the ship. So that evening, the captain holds a big party. In, in the man's honor, and he, he says, would you like to say any words to, to the, you know, ship about this? And the, the gentleman said, sure, I'd like to say something. And he stands up and kind of surveys the crowd. He looks around, and after pausing, he says, I just have one question. He said, who pushed me? You know, sometimes the only way we'll start moving is if somebody gives us a push, right? And friends, if you will not come back to God on your own, God may push you. God may bring some hard things in your world uh, in order to help you move. That's what's happening with the people of Israel. God had to use their enemies to drive them back to himself. Uh, he, He had to push them through the hard things that were happening. As you look at your own life, I want want you to ask yourself, is there something hard happening right now where God may be trying to get your attention? Are you somebody that God is pushing because you won't move on your own? If you find yourself in that place, maybe you're you're in that season of kind of sin and bondage. As I said earlier, we're all sinners. The Bible is very clear for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 says every one of us sins. But you know there are times you find yourself in an especially far time from God where you're just kind of wallowing in your sin. And you may be there this morning. You you may be in the next cycle where God has moved you to a time of consequence where you find yourself, as I said, a slave to an addiction, some chronic problem, some series of consequences that have built up to the point that, that you find yourself just saying, God, I have nowhere to turn but to you. And if that's where you find yourself this morning, it's a good place to be because God says, move to supplication. Cry out to me. Call on me. Romans 10.13 tells us, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 2.21 echoes this saying, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And what we find in Judges 3.9 is that the people finally find themselves flat on their back again, looking up and seeing God. And they're going to uh, call out to him. They're going to turn to God, and he's going to raise up and deliver to save them. But first, as we see in verses 5 through 8 in the next verses, the people have to be pushed again. It has to get a little harder for them to finally cry out because verses 5 through 8 tell us, And the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. 
And they took their daughters for themselves as wives, and they gave their own daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. And the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherah. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, the king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. You see, rather than serving the righteous and the holy God, the one who had protected them, the one who had provided for them, it says they turned from God. They turned to the pagan gods of the world. And as a result, this pagan king, whose name literally means doubly wicked. That's what that fancy name is, doubly wicked. And, and they, they found themselves under the king of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia was to the north. He, it's in the area of Syria and, and uh, Iraq in our day, northern Iraq. So this, this foreign king comes all the way down to the south where the people of Israel were, and he enslaves them. And God allows this cruel king to come down to be an instrument of discipline, to drive the people back to himself. Now, when we read things like this, we go, God, what are you doing? You're a holy God. You're a God of justice. You're punishing evil with somebody whose name means doubly evil. You're going to take wickedness and and you're going to punish your people with somebody like him. Why? It's like what happened on a playground one day where uh, you had this uh, woman who was sitting on a bench watching two little boys out on the playground uh, playing, and, and they kind of got crosswise with each other, and before long they were pushing and shoving, and a fight was breaking out, and suddenly this, this man comes running over, and he separates the two boys. And he, and he grabs one of the boys. He takes him over to the side. You can see him. He's kind of having a stern talking to with this little boy, and, and he takes him aside, and uh, he, he, he separates him, and then he goes and sits back down. Now, the woman was sitting near this, this man, and she turns to him, and she says, Sir, I don't... I don't know what's really going on. It's maybe none of my business, she said, but that doesn't seem very fair to me, what you just did. Both those boys were fighting, and, and you only disciplined one of them. Well, why, why were you doing that? And the man looks at this woman and says, well, ma'am, that one's my son. I don't have a relationship with the other boy. Now, we can say, well, is God holy and just? Is he going to punish wickedness? And the answer is yes. The Bible is very clear. There is a day coming where all injustice, all wickedness will be dealt with. Read Revelation about the golden bowls being poured out. And all the prayers of the past, all the injustices are one day going to be made right. But what we have here is where God is saying, uh, there is wickedness in the world, but I am focused on my people. It's what we read in Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, where we're told, And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit 
of righteousness. Now, what it's telling us is divine discipline will come when there's disobedience for sons and daughters of God. If you are a believer in Christ as a man, woman, boy, or girl, you are a child of God. You've been adopted into the family. And it says because of that, God loves you and he will discipline you. You can say, well, that doesn't sound very good, but it's actually great news. What this tells us is you should worry if you call yourself a Christian and you're in sin and God doesn't do something to drive you back to himself. Because those whom he loves, those who he has a relationship with, will be disciplined by him. You as parents know that. You discipline your own children because you love them. And God, our heavenly father, does the same thing with us. He says, I love you. I love you too much to leave you like you are. Which is why we're told not to lose heart when God disciplines us. I love the story of a little boy who was out at a park and he was... Uh, at a pond, he had a little toy boat, and he had put it in the water, and he had a stick, and he kind of, you know, playing with it, keeping it close to shore, and he's sailing this boat around, he'd take it out, put it in, and he's playing with it for a while, but suddenly uh, some wind comes up, and it blows his boat uh, farther out from shore than he can reach with his stick. And the little boy's uh, running along the shore. His boat is moving farther and farther out, and, he, and he's, you know, upset that he's losing his boat. It's going out further into the water, and as he's watching his boat, suddenly there's this big splash right by his boat. And then there's another big splash as this rock falls in the water, and, and, and he's horrified. He doesn't know what's going on. He looks up, and he, he notices there's a man on the other shore who's got a handful of rocks, and he's throwing these rocks at his boat. The little boy's about to cry out, hey, mister, stop trying to sink my boat, you know, and, and yet another rock lands near his boat and there's a splash and then suddenly he, he sees what's happening. As these rocks are hitting the water, it's creating a wave and a ripple and it's pushing the boat back to shore. And eventually the boat gets close enough where the boy can pick it up and reclaim his boat. Some of you this morning have a life that's drifted out of control. And to make things worse, you've seen God kind of throwing rocks. And you've thought, well, he's trying to chase me away or he's trying to sink me. But brothers and sisters in Christ, what God's trying to do is drive you back to him. God loves you. And the reason he's creating waves isn't to drown you, it's to drive you back to himself. Discipline is not God saying, I'm through with you. Rather, it's the loving act of a heavenly father who says, I love you too much to leave you like you are. I want you to come home. Pastor Charles Spurgeon once said, God never allows his people to sin successfully. Their sin will either destroy them or it will invite the chastening hand of God to drive them back to him. In our passage, we see uh, that the people of Israel had hardened their heart So hard, in fact, it takes eight long years of captivity under this doubly wicked king before they come to their spiritual senses and they turn back to God. And when they finally turn back, notice God's mercy. His gracious response in verse 9 as it says, And when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, there's a supplication, the Lord raised up a deliverer, their salvation, it says, for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel the son of Kenez, Caleb's younger brother. Now, Othniel's family line is mentioned here, 
we see he's the son of Kenez, but we also see he's related to Caleb. Now, you'll recall in Judges 1.13 that in, the, in chapter 1, we saw that Caleb was the father-in-law of Othniel because he had given his son, uh, he had given his daughter, uh, Aksa, to Othniel to be the son-in-law. They were married. In that chapter, you'll remember Israel had come into the land. And there were only two of the original 12 spies who had been allowed to come back. You'll recall that we talked about how when Israel first went into the land as God had promised it, they sent 12 spies into the land. And 10 of them came back and said, we can't do this. There's giants in the land. The enemy's too strong. We're going to be consumed and destroyed. Uh, But two of them, Joshua and Caleb said, hey, God said, this is our land. God is going to go before us. We can take it. But because the nation did not trust in God, because they did not depend on God, they were looking at their arsenal, their abilities, and they said, we can't do this. They forgot to to fight on their knees and turn to God. God said, you're going to go and wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And the entire generation of those who were able to wage war, those of that age, died in the wilderness. That included Othniel's mom and dad. But then the two who had trusted in God, Joshua and Caleb, came back into the land. And you remember Caleb uh, took the the biggest, baddest city, the one that had caused the nation to, to tremble in fear, and he marched up the mountain and he took that city, and there was a sister city named Debir. Same thing, a fortified city filled with giants. And Caleb said, whatever man trusts in God enough to take that city, I will give my daughter to that man in marriage. It was, it was guaranteeing he would have a son-in-law who depended on God, a, a son-in-law full of faith and trust in God, and that was Othniel. You know, with his parents gone, Caleb would have helped to watch over and influence Othniel. And what a great and godly influence he was as Numbers 14.24 and Deuteronomy 1.36 describe Caleb as a man who fully followed God. Men and women, wouldn't you love that to be on your tombstone? Wouldn't that be a great epitaph for you as we talked about last week? What's your tombstone going to say? This is a man, this is a woman who fully followed God. That was Caleb. Othniel had the privilege of seeing the principles of trust and obedience demonstrated in Caleb's life. And these things helped Othniel learn to trust in God and live them out himself. He had already demonstrated trust in God at Debir in chapter 1 as he took that city. And now, uh, having trusted God there, God gives him a bigger assignment here. He says, I'm going to use you to deliver the nation from all the enemies in the land. I'm going to raise you up as the leader of the whole nation. He, He had the benefit of being influenced by a man like Caleb, and now the nation benefits from Othniel as he becomes uh, the one taking the mantle of national leadership. I want you to think about your life for a moment. I want you to think about who the men and women are in your life who have mentored you, who the influences have been in your life that have taught you to trust in God, that have modeled for you what it means to follow after God. Who are those men and women in your life who have impacted you? And then I want you to think about how you can take what you've learned and build it into the lives of others. Who are the people you're personally mentoring? Who are the men and women, boys and girls, that your life is touching and teaching to follow after God? 
2 Timothy 2.2 tells us, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to, entru- who will be able to teach others also. All of us, as men and women, are to be pouring into the next generation, teaching others what it means to follow God, modeling in our own lives. As God raises up Othniel, we see that God gives him what he needs to succeed. As verse 10 says, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan-Rithathame, the king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan-Rithathame. Othniel had been successful in the battle of Debir because he trusted God, and here again he succeeds because the Lord was with him. Moses told Joshua in Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Friends, God makes that promise to us in the New Testament in Hebrews 13.5-6. He says, I will never leave you. I will never desert you. I will not forsake you so that we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? In Zechariah 4, 6, we're told, By God, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That name means literally the Lord of armies. When we place our faith and trust in God, God's spirit is given to us. Do you not realize, brothers and sisters in Christ, that as a believer you are sealed and indwelled by the Holy Spirit? When we talk about God being physically with us, he is with us. 1 Corinthians three sixteen uh, says... Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you? As a Christian, you literally have God physically present with you. He's given you his power. He's given you his presence. And as we turn and walk with God, we can experience his power and his peace when we're walking with him. Now, when when it comes to God's peace, I'm not promising you prosperity. I'm not telling you there will be no bumps in the road. Remember what we've already seen. We are living in a war zone. We have an enemy, Satan, who is roaming about looking for somebody to devour. But when we turn turn things over to God, he promises we can have his peace that passes all understanding. What does this peace look like if it doesn't mean that life is easy, that there's no problems? Well, there was a king who decided he wanted to hold a contest in his kingdom. And he sent out notice uh, to everybody that he was going to be holding a contest where he would award great riches to the artist who could paint the best picture of peace. So he invited everybody in the kingdom to to paint a picture that they thought would, would picture perfect peace. And after a period of time, the day came where the paintings were brought in and a number of beautiful pictures came in. Some uh, showed like sheep grazing on a, a, a lush hillside or a meadow. Others featured a beautiful valley. Some had majestic mountains. There were scenes of, of, of nice blue skies. There were, there were a number of beautiful paintings. And the king went through and he said, I'm going to look at all of these and I'm going to pick two finalists. And then I will present these to you. Uh, next week. And so the people gathered in the, the palace courtyard. There were, there were two easels with pictures. There were blankets over each one. And the king uh, said, these are the, the two best paintings. These are the two finalists that, that picture what peace looks like. And as he pulls the cover from the first painting, there was a hush that fell over the crowd. It showed a pristine lake 
Those you've seen where they're like smooth as glass. It was, it was like a mirror reflecting this majestic mountain that was there in the picture. The sky was just this beautiful blue with just a few light, wispy clouds in it. There was uh, lush green trees that framed the picture, and as people are looking at this serene scene, uh, they could just feel the peace. And they thought, surely, surely this is the winner. Now the king said, hold on, there's another painting, and he pulls the cover off of that one. And this time as the crowd looked on, there was a a noticeable gasp as people uh, looked at this picture. It also featured a mountain, but this one was barren. It was rocky. The sky was filled with gray storm clouds. In fact, there was lightning cutting across the picture. There was a torrential rain falling in the picture, so much so that it was was filling uh, a stream that turned into a raging waterfall rushing over the edge of a cliff. And near this rushing torrent was a scraggly single tree that was sticking out from a crack in the cliff. And when the king announced that this was the picture of his choice for perfect peace, the crowd started calling out, what, why, no, how, how can this be the picture? And the king said, he calmed the crowd and then he said, I want you to look closely at this painting. And he said, if you look right here, you will see that tucked away in the the crack of the cliff where the tree is shielded by the rock overhang, there's a nest. And there's there's a little bird, if you look closely, sitting on her eggs. And this bird's eyes were closed and at peace in the midst of the raging storm all around. And the king explained, perfect peace is not the absence of noise or trouble or hard work. Rather, it is being able to be in the midst of those things and still to be calm in your heart. Jesus told us in John 16, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. You can read John 10, 28 and 29, where Christ pictures and he says, he's taken his nail-scarred hands and he's placed us in it. And he says that Christ has closed his nail-scarred hand around us. And then he says, my father who is greater than all has closed his hand around. And he says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. Friends, we live in a broken world. We live in a world wrecked by disaster. Hades had an earthquake. Louisiana has a Category 4 hurricane hitting. Afghanistan is falling apart. You can think more locally in your own life, the things that you're facing, fear of COVID, uh, financial hardship, struggles, trouble, all kinds of things. And you can say, Roger, right now the world is falling apart. How can I be at peace? Jesus said, I've spoken these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. He says, are you in me? Have you placed your faith and trust in me? Because I've closed my hand around you. And God, our heavenly father, your daddy, has closed his hand around. You're doubly sheltered, you're doubly secure. He says, nothing, nothing can snatch you out of my hand. As you look at your life today, are you experiencing peace? God offers you peace if you will come to him, if you will trust in him. When the people of Israel chose to run away from God, to choose sin, they experienced the consequences of slavery, just as you might be today. 
But when they repented, when they turned to him, when they cried out to God in prayer, he raised up a deliverer to save them. As long as they stayed close to God, they were given peace. Look at what verse 11 says. Then the land had rest 40 years. And Othniel, the son of Kenez, died. You know, I wish the story stopped there. I wish we could linger in this season of peace. Forty years, four decades, the land had rest. Did the people learn? No. As we'll see next week in verse 12, the sad cycle will restart as the people fall back into sin and God will be forced to send them into slavery again in order to drive them back to himself. As we come to a close today, I want to ask you to look at this cycle as I did last week. I want to ask you the same question I closed with last week. Where are you in this cycle? Where do you find yourself in this cycle this morning? Now, as I said, we're all sinners. We can all say, well, I'm a sinner, Roger, I'm there. But are you lingering there? Is that the, is that the definition of how you're living right now? Do you find yourself in the next part where God has applied consequences to your life, where you become enslaved to, as I said, an addiction, some chronic problem in your life? If you find yourself there, you don't have to stay there. What God says is cry out to me, turn to me, repent of your sins. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sin, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, confession is not just mouthing some empty words. The word confess is the Greek word homo legeo. Homo means the same, and legeo means to speak or say. Confession literally means to say the same thing as God says about our sin. When we confess our sin, we say, God, it's wrong. I see it's driven me away from you. I see that I've been walking away from you and I want to repent. I want to stop, turn around and go in the other direction. That's what repentance means. To have a change of mind, it leads to a change of action. If we confess our sins, it says God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. There is not a single sin you have committed that God has not covered through the blood of his son, Jesus, on the cross. And he says, when you cry out to me in supplication, when you turn to me, Romans 10, 13 says, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We're saved through the Savior, the ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ, who was raised up, who came and left his throne in heaven to walk the earth, to ultimately go to the cross to be the payment for your sins and mine. And he says, when you come to my son, when you accept him as your savior, you will have silence, you will have peace, you will have rest. Not just for all eternity, but even in this day, even in the midst of trouble. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. God wants you to experience his perfect peace in the midst of the storm in the world in which we live. Matthew 121 tells us, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ came. He went to the cross. He paid the penalty of death for your sins and mine. As we end today, I want you to ask yourself, have you ever turned to Jesus Christ? Have you ever acknowledged that you were a sinner in need of a savior and said, God, I've been far from you, but today I want to come home. Today, Jesus, I'm accepting you as my Savior, your death, your payment in my place. If you've never done so, I invite you to do so today. 
Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Others of us here have taken that step of faith. We've turned to God, but maybe we've turned back away from him. We haven't been walking in fellowship with him. And God invites us today to turn around and come home, to come and be back in fellowship with him. And so if you've been far from God today, use this time as we close in prayer as well to say, God, I've made a mess of my life. I've walked away from you. I realize that I've been living in sin. I haven't made the right choices. But today, God, I want to turn around. I want to come home. And God will receive you back. You've never lost your salvation, but you've had your fellowship broken. You've had your fellowship with others broken as your sin has become something that's driven you far from home or far from others who love you. And God says, come home today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I want you to look at your life. I want you to think about where you are and use this time to confess your sins. Come to Christ if you've never done so. And for those who have walked away from him to come back home. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then I'll close this as we go into our last song of worship. Lord God, we thank you for your word that reminds us of your great love for us. God, no matter how many times we've turned from you, no matter how many times we've chosen to run this cycle of sin instead of lingering in, in, with you as our Savior, you, you are there to restore us, to save us. Lord, you've written in Romans 5, 8 that you demonstrated your love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, you, Christ, died for us. God, there may be somebody here or worshiping with us online who has not yet ever come to faith in you, Jesus. And today, you're waiting for them. And you've said your arms are open wide, not because they're still nailed to the cross, but because you have them open wide to receive this prodigal son or daughter, this man, woman, boy or girl who needs to come to you. And so if you're that person, just say to God, God, I'm a sinner. I recognize I've made mistakes in my life. I haven't been living as I should. And today, God, I want to come home. I thank you that you loved me, that you left your throne in heaven to go to the cross, to shed your blood, to wash away my sins. And today, Jesus, I accept you as my personal Savior. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising from the grave, showing you conquered sin and death. Thank you for making me a part of your family. Lord God, for others of us who have come to faith in the past, maybe we haven't lived as we should. We've, we've chosen to, to fall into the ways of the world. And today, God, we want to come home. We thank you that you loved us too much to leave us as, as we are, that you, you were willing to discipline us, to bring the hard things in our life to drive us back to you. And today, God, we're coming home. Father, as a country, we've, stra we've strayed so far from you, God. We've been deserving of judgment. All the things that we see happening in the world and in our national leadership and just in, in, our, in the country and the condition we are, God, we are deserving of your judgment. We thank you that you've called on us to repent and return to you, that you will heal our land that you will help our leaders to be those that they need to be if they will humble themselves and turn to you. So we ask that, God, that that would happen. Father, as your people, 
as those who are recipients of your grace, you call on us to be messengers into our schools, our workplaces, into the community around us, into the world even beyond. And so would we go, God, and be faithful to take this message of hope, this message of salvation into the world. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us and saving us. It's in your precious name that we pray and thank you. Amen.